All right, can we um, stand or remain standing as we hear the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11? Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Shelby. Good afternoon. It's a nice day out. Two, two quick uh, warnings about this, the next 30 minutes. Uh, one, uh, this is going to be a little bit longer than normal. I wouldn't normally do this, but I just want you to be fair warned on that so that when I'm droning on, you're like, he doesn't know he's droning on. I do. Number two, um, it's going to require a little more brain energy than normal. So just I'm inviting you to brain energy. Uh, I know it's 4 4.30 in the afternoon. Um, so let's, let's pray, and then we'll jump right into this. Father, we thank you for your grace and the gospel. We thank you for the power of the cross. We thank you that you will hold us fast and that we believe in that and that it fills our soul with hope and joy and peace. We pray today as we think about um, the summary of the story of Christ that you would encourage our hearts uh, open our eyes and our hearts to see and know. In your name we pray, amen. So there's a, a somewhat famous uh, parable um, that was told about two fish that were swimming up a stream. The two fish were swimming, two young fish were swimming up the stream, and an older fish comes and swims down downstream and passes the, the younger fish. And, the, and he nods at the younger fish, and he says, Morning, boys, how's the water? And the, the two little fish continue to swim down the stream. And a little while later, one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the heck is water? Okay, the person who told the story then goes on to say this. The point of the fish story is merely that the most obvious and important realities are often the ones that are the hardest to see. Right? Fish don't think about what water is. They just swim in it because it's there looking and seeing the things that are just there are hard. It's hard for us to do. And philosophers will say that the three big questions that all human beings ask is, where did I come from? Who am I? And where am I going? Where did I come from? Who am I? Where am I going? And the the answers to those questions are like water. They're hard to see. They're hard to understand. They're hard to know exactly what what we think about those. And culturally speaking, when we go out that door and we live in the world, there's There's three isms that define the answers to those questions for us. 
We've talked about these a little bit. They are, I'm just gonna say them briefly. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on this, but secularism is like obsession with doubt. Individualism, obsession with individual people. And consumerism, obsession with happiness. Those three things for most of our culture define what it means to live. Answers the questions, where did I come from? Who am I? And where am I going? I want to read this. This is the same guy that told the story, gives this example. He says, here's an example of the total wrongness of something I tend to be automatically sure of. Everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe. The realest, most vivid, and most important person in my existence is me. It's our default setting hardwired into our boards at birth. Does that ring true with you? Like the most real person you know is you. And so everything that you do is defined around you. And here's the thing about our society that is secular and individualistic and consumerist because we've produced an amazing society. Like we've got, we're the most advanced, comfortable, technologically, you know, savvy, civilized, free society in the history of the world. I mean, we have heated seats inside of cars that park themselves, right? I can, we have lights that turn themselves on, right? I occasionally meet with Joseph Metzger in the morning at his house. His, his lights automatically turn brighter it's when it's sunrise. Like, that's amazing. That's like utopia, right? Like you can go and get a, we have coffee shops everywhere. You can get $5 amazing lattes, breweries. There's food from all over the globe at your grocery store right now. You can get two-day shipping, one-day shipping, same-day shipping. Like, if you, if you imported anybody from a different time period into this time period, they'd be like, this is utopia. Like, think about it. This is, the, this is the most advanced, amazing civilization in the history of the world. And yet, we're racked with loneliness, despair, depression, anxiety, fear, anger, bitterness. We're all, we're bad at relationships. We're bad at community. We're clearly bad at politics. We're bad at friendship. The most basic thing outside of ourselves is friendship, and we're bad at it. We're plagued by doubt about anything that's ultimate. Even your pastor, pastors that you know, the most faithful pastor goes home and is racked by doubt about the very fundamental things that he even does as, as a job. Because every person is susceptible to this new kind of system of doubt about anything that's ultimate. Deconversion stories which I'm sure you've heard, suicide, our very own hearts testify to us that this amazing society that we live in is missing something. Right? The, the story that our society tells is missing something. The, the idea of ultimate meaning and purpose and where are we going and why are we here and what, who are we it seems further like, than ever from our grasp in our society. And we feel it in our own hearts. I mean, I do. I talk to you. I know that many of you do. We feel there's a weight of like, what are we doing here? And part of the reason why we have this issue is that we are formed as people by the stories that we tell, the stories that we think about, the stories that we consume. There's a book I just read. He says this about stories. He says, stories, more than any ethics lecture or Sunday school lesson, shape our ideas about what the good life is where the world is going, and what it means to be human. The stories tell us 
about what is beautiful and about what is just and how we should live with one another. We don't just hear or listen or read stories. We become them. Think about the stories that you consume or think about or engage on a weekly basis. In marketing, in podcasts, in books, in TVs, in commercials, everywhere you go, you're hearing stories that are telling us who we are and where we're going and where we, we came from. And those things are forming us to embrace the idea of happiness and freedom and self-determination. Like we're swimming in this water of you produce your own meaning and it's destroying our, under, our ability to understand what really matters. And what we need when we come into church, what we need when we come together as believers is we need to be telling a different story to ourselves. A story that will recalibrate us to answer those three questions in ways that are actually true. Where did I come from? Who am I and where am I going? And the story that, that we tell, we don't just need to know it, we need to actually live inside of that story. Allow it to define everything that we do. The story is, of course, the story that's told in the scriptures. The biblical story of Jesus and what he's done and what he's going to do. This story is summarized in what we say every single week, what we call the creed. The Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. We say them on alternating weeks. It's a a 14, 15 kind of idea uh, summary of what we believe and what this story teaches. I didn't grow up in a church that said the creed. I learned it from Rich Mullins. And if you know Rich Mullins, the Rich Mullins song is called Creed. That's how I learned it. Um, but the creed is the story of the Bible in summary form. One of the books I've been reading to study for this, he describes it this way. It's a story that we already know, but that bears such constant repetition For it is a story unlike any other. A story that we must speak to each other because so much of what we experience in the world seems to deny the reality or the power of the story. It's part of why we say it every single week. It's part of why the entirety of our service is built around telling and living within this story because we need it to reanimate us, not as things we know, but as a way that we live. So this is the first week in our new series. We're walking through the creed. It's going to take 14 weeks, including today, to walk line by line through the, the creed. We're going to track with both the Nicene and the Apostles' creeds. The Nicene's a little bit longer, but it has exactly the same kind of ideas built into it. It's going to be, when you hear that, you think, well, this is just going to be like a theology class, doctrinal lecture. It's not going to be less than learning about doctrine, but it's going to be a lot more than that. So each week we're going to talk about the line, what what the doctrine is, and we'll talk how it emerged from the Bible and how it summarizes the story. But then we will look after that at how that goes into and provides parameters and defines our lives in certain ways. And to do that, it will require the hardest part of every single one of these messages will be that it will confront our cultural idol of self. All humans in history have been selfish. We now have a society that is literally built from the ground up on the conviction that you are the center of the world. And we have to confront that. We need to see how the creed does that. That's what we're going to be doing each week. One scripture passage that connects with the content to do that. That's what we're going to do. But today, I want to do something to start us off from 1 Corinthians 15, the passage that shall be read for us. Um, and to see how the creed itself, not its content, but the idea of the creed, answers or helps answer these three questions. Where did I come from? Who am I? And where am I going? So let's start with, where do we come from? 
Look at the text in 1 Corinthians. If you have your Bible open, it's 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Paul is writing to this church. Had a lot of problems. The first, like, 14 chapters were like, hey, y'all are pretty messed up. Now he gets to chapter 15 and says this. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preach to you. I want you to think about this. Look, look down your Bible. He says, I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you. And then he says two other lines that we're going to look at carefully. And then in verse 3 through 11... He says a bunch of things in a row that sound an awful lot like the creed. Right? It's a summary of the story of Jesus built right into the text. You can see in your Bible, it's not up top there, but it's this Jesus died and he was resurrected and then he appeared to people and then he's going to come back again. And you see that? How it's like the, the, the creed is right there in the scripture. And this is one of several places in the Bible where we have these statements that summarize the basic essential message of what the story is teaching right in the Bible. And so the Bible has kind of this idea built into it that, that Christians will take this whole complicated mess of a story and summarize it so that we can understand what it is and what it means. But then he says this, I would remind you of the gospel I preached to you, and then he says, which you received. You, you could read it fast and not think about it, but what is, it, what is he saying? Which you received. The content of this story the creed itself, is not something that you made up. It's not something that you wrote. It's not something that you chose. It's something that you received from outside of you, written two, oh, close to 2,000 years ago by a lot of people that you don't know, and you received it. Paul says, I received it, and then I gave it to you, and then you gave it, and then you gave it, and passed around through the generations, and now today, 2,000 years later, we stand and say the very same story that we have received. It comes from outside of us. It precedes us. Now, there's two primary creeds that we say. We say the Nicene Creed, and we say the Apostles' Creed. The Nicene Creed was formulated on the eastern side of the church in Greek, and it took 350 years for this creed to kind of bubble to the form that we have it today. There's a lot of different creeds in the early church, like ways, and you can see them in the scriptures, different ways to summarize the story. And over time, the church kind of moved through these and moved through these and edited and edited. Um, one professor of church history says, the church possessed the truth in the New Testament, but it needed centuries to reflect on how best to express the truth. So you come to Constantine in the fourth century, takes over the Roman Empire, calls all of the people from all over the Roman Empire together, all the bishops, and he gets them in a room. There's crazy stories about how this happened. He gets all the bishops from all of the known world into a single room and says, let's sit down and talk about what, what, do, what does the church actually believe? And out of that, in 325 comes this creed that we call the Nicene Creed. And 50 years later, they had another gathering, and they they reworked it. They made a few small changes to kind of push back on heresy. And in 381, you have the final version of the Nicene Creed, which has basically been identical from that day until today. And it's accepted by every single branch of the Christian church. It's amazing. <laughs> That's like not just, you know, every single denomination in the United States, but every single branch throughout all of history since 381 has accepted the Nicene Creed as a basic summary of what happens in this book. It's amazing. It's fantastic. And we received it. Okay, the Apostles' Creed was written originally in Latin and called the Old Roman Creed, and it was used, coincidentally enough and awesomely enough, as a way to affirm faith during baptism. 
which is really cool, because that's what we're going to do later. We're going to see how the creed helps us affirm the faith that we have in baptism. And it kind of worked through the Latin church, and it's called the Apostles' Creed, not because the apostles wrote it, but because it was believed by the church to summarize the true teaching of the apostles, which is the New Testament. It came in kind of the form that we have it today. It came into that form in the 8th century. It's a good bit later. Together, these two creeds summarize this content, and we receive them. Do you see how that pushes back on our basic assumption that we generate and create our own meaning? The very idea that we would come in this room and spend 45 seconds reciting a story that was written by somebody else 2,000 years ago testifies to the fact that we don't create our own meaning. Where do we come from? We come from somewhere else, someone else that has given us our meaning and given us our purpose. Saying the creed is this like little emblem that we don't define ourselves. I went to my grandfather, turned 80 a couple years ago. As I was thinking through this, it reminded me of, went to this, uh, his party and um, got to hear a lot of stories of things that had happened. And I realized that like a bunch of stuff that had happened to me and the way that my dad had raised me was all stuff that he had received from his dad. And his dad, his grandfather, now 80, is telling stories about his grandmother and things that she did for him. You see this receivedness that gets passed down. It re- reminded me of this. Like the creed is being passed down from generation in the church to generation to generation to preserve and say, you are not your own. You don't define your own truth. And so when we say it, we're admitting that we come from someone else. So that's the first one. Where do we come from? But also answers the second question. Paul does. Who are we now? He says, in which you received. And then he says, in which you stand. Not only did you receive it, it helps us answer where do we come from, but we stand in it. It's something that we have entered into. That's the kind of of picture of, of standing. That the creed itself, the content of the creed, the idea of the creed, it does something to us. Now here's the thing. I have like three and a half hours of content on this point. Okay, this is literally the hardest sermon point that I've written in the last seven months because I have like a lot of things. So I'm gonna try and say just a few things about this. But this is really, really important. The creed as a story is, in, in a lot of ways, what we would typically call, what our culture in English would call a myth. You know, you hear that, you like freak out, you're like, oh no, myth. But myth doesn't mean untrue. The idea of a myth is the idea of a story that explains things that we can't understand, see, or measure. That's what the creed is doing. It is a, as C.S. Lewis said, a true myth. And this is why we love epic stories. So we love Lord of the Rings and the Avengers and Stranger Things and Lost and whatever else. Like things, epic stories that point to realities behind them, that, th- those are like mythical things because we can't measure them. I can't put one God Almighty in a box and be like, there he is. Right? It's, it's describing and explaining things beyond us. And as we read the creed, as it's got characters, it's got plot. It's this story, this myth that helps explain everything that's going on around us. And the main character of the story is God. Right? That's, this book is mythological in the sense that it points beyond itself to things that we can't see or know. It's trying to help us understand that. Now, I don't know if you ever picked this up and started to read it from the beginning. There's a lot of words in here. Right? Have you ever heard of David Attenborough? You know him? Joseph, I know you know him. There he is, thank you. 
He's, the, he's like 93 now. He's the guy that narrates all the like uh, planet Earth stuff, you know, the British accent. He's like, there's the gazelle, right? And he's like, if you just saw, if you just watched all those National Geographic videos without any narration, you would be really confused about what the heck is going on. Like, you wouldn't know what three-quarters of the animals were, right? David narrates the content in order to help you understand what it is. That is what the creed does for the Bible. It narrates the myth. As we read this, we have this narrator that says, this is how to understand this. This is how to read this. It takes this complicated, long, uh, multifaceted story that comes in lots of different literature and genres and time periods, and it says, this is what it means, and this is how to read it, and this is how to understand it. It's like you say, it's like if you tried to, if you handed somebody all the works of Shakespeare and was like, tell me about the English language, you'd be lost. Even though it's the greatest work in the English language, you wouldn't be able to get very far without having some hooks to understand how to read and where to start and what to do. And that's what the creed does for the scripture. It summarizes and points in the right direction. It, it has narrates and structures and boundaries, all of the things that we could read. I don't know if you've um, thought a lot about what's in here, but there's a lot of ways to interpret this. The creed helps focus on the things that matter and tell us how and what, where, the, where the faith is going to make sure that we don't come up with a faith or a Jesus of our own choosing. And so as we have this myth that points beyond itself and the, the creed narrates it for us, then, I want you to hear this, then says a scholar named Luke Timothy Johnson, he says, when we recite the creed, we affirm that the world as imagined by the scripture and constructed by the creed is the world that we will choose to live in. We must imagine this world together and choose to live in that world and none other. The creed narrates reality. It's not just a, a couple of things that we like check the box, yes, I believe that. It's, it's the story of everything that we're doing and when we come in here, we want to cultivate the imagination that it is explaining the very fabric of reality to us. It's telling us that when we read this book, when the church throughout history has read this book, it says this is the way to go, walk in it. And from that, then it allows us to know how to live our lives. It's like the idea, we'll get into this as we go through it, but the idea that confessing in line one next week, one God Almighty, the idea that we're confessing one all-powerful God, just consider the implications of that. The implications that there is one God who is all-powerful, that has so many far-reaching implications about how we do or don't live in the world. A lot of implications about reality and what we should or shouldn't do. Or further down, that Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead. If that's true, if that constructs reality, there's a lot of implications for our life from that. And so this pushes back on our idea that we get to define our own identity. It says, no, your identity is defined by this story. So the creed helps us know where we came from and that we received it, it, who we are now, and that it's, it, is in the thing, it is the thing in which we stand, but it also then tells us where we're headed. The next clause, Paul says, by which you are being saved. It's a future-oriented clause. The, the creeds are structured in a Trinitarian format. Father, Son, Spirit. 
They begin at the beginning with God as the creator. They move through the work of Jesus, which has a lot of more specifics in it. And then they move to the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And then they move towards resurrection life. It puts a definite ending on the trajectory of the story. There's, there's a person and there's a story that this whole world is about. But what's interesting about the creed in that sense is what is not there. You know who doesn't show up in the creed? Me. You. That's very intentional. It's very, very intentional. The story is not about you. It's not about me. We're not the ones that get to create and define what we want to be happy or how we want to live or where we're going. And when we do that, you know what we get? We get our depression and our anxiety and our anger and our all of the other things we're plagued with because we tend to think that we define our own end, that we can get there if we try hard enough. And the creed, by leaving us out, says you can't do that. The story is not about you. It's about the Father, Son, and the Spirit working for our salvation. And you see, our like, secular progressive story of self is very short and very tragic. I used to play this game when I was growing up called Careers. It's like a game from the 70s, I think. And at the beginning of the game, you get to choose a certain amount of fame and a certain amount of happiness and a certain amount of money that you're trying to achieve by the end of the game. And you win by achieving that amount at the end of the game. Like you can, and you can choose different careers and you go through and bad things and good things happen. You're trying to get to fame, money, and happiness. And that's how the game is defined in terms of, or the game of life. You play the game of life. You know how to win the game of life? Have the most money at the end of the game. This is the secular progressive story. And it's very short and very tragic because as soon as you die, you return to dust and so does all your money and so does all your happiness. Instead, the Christian story says, I believe in. You notice it doesn't say, I believe that. I believe that we are in this room. I believe that Donald Trump is the president. I believe that the sky is blue. I believe that unicorns exist. If I'm wrong, I don't care. That's very different from the wording of the creed that says, I believe in. It's not a doctrine that you can just check a box. It's, a, it's, a, it's an affirmation of loyalty and trust. And by starting with this phrase, I or we believe in, it points to a different kind of salvation than we're used to thinking about. A salvation that comes from outside of us. Fulfillment, wholeness, happiness, flourishing, justice, peace, love come from without us, from this character, God, not from ourselves. And Paul says to them, which you have received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, answering the things that I'm about to tell you, this gospel that I told you, this story that you know, it tells you where you come from, it tells you who you are, and it tells you where you're going. It answers the most fundamental questions of our life. And he closes verse two by saying, if you hold fast to that word, unless you believed in vain. Believing in vain means to believe for no purpose, to believe without actually allowing these things to dominate and direct our lives. Embracing the story that we find in these creeds is the way to salvation. That's what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians. I wanted to start this way because I want to plant at least some seeds, hopefully in your mind and your heart, that the creed is, is less about 
just coming in and saying some doctrinal things and more about forming us as a people who believe and live inside of a certain kind of story, a story that is centered on God, where salvation is achieved by God, where identity is defined by God, where we come from God and we go to God and God is all in all. That is the point of looking into this series, walking through the creed. Maybe that makes you skeptical. Maybe that makes you interested. But the goal is to actually look at our assumptions about these things and how we can live in the right story. The fish story that we started with was given by David Foster Wallace, who's an author. He ended his speech this way, and I'm editing it, as you can tell. The real value of the creed, that's my part, his part, has everything to do with simple awareness. Awareness of what is so real and essential, so hidden in plain sight all around us, all the time, that we have to keep reminding ourselves over and over, this is water. It's a great great speech. Look it up. It's called This is Water. Reminding us that the story of the creed, the reason we say it every week is because it actually is the summary of all that is. And if we don't remind ourselves, our stories that we get out there will convince us otherwise and will lead to drastically perverted understandings of where we come from, who we are, and where we're going. So let's enter this season of walking through this creed hoping to confront our idolatries and find ways to be be, be ushered into a different story together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the creed. We thank you that you have allowed and preserved these words to come down uh, to us now, that we didn't create them or invent them, that we don't have to start from square zero, um, but that you, you th- through your spirit and by your people have preserved uh, the essentials, given us a blueprint for our faith and a blueprint for the world and how to live it, how to live in it. We pray that you'd give us grace as we as we go over the next few weeks, that you would open our eyes, that you would pull our hearts towards you to know and see the story as it is, to see the world as it is, to not be um, wandering away from the things that are true and real. We pray as we give our offering that you would um, be present in our hearts, uh, calling us, to, uh, reminding us that you are the one uh, true God who owns uh, all things and that as we give, we return them to you as a symbol of of your possession of everything. And we pray these things in your name.